invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, as we're looking at a very long and profound discourse, the Bread of Life discourse by Jesus, as we're looking at primarily 27 verses from verse uh, 32 to verse 59. And as I mentioned, there's, there's a, a lot in this text that I think is best recognized when we gather together the things that are repeated. One of the important rules of proper hermeneutics or the skills and principles of proper interpretation of the Bible, one of the very simple ones is, what are the things that the writer, the human writer, is repeating? What are the things that the human writer is saying over and over again? Their expressions, words, maybe some uh, concept is repeated that's intentional. There isn't any superfluous words in the whole of Scripture. All is important. And so when Paul says, I say, for instance, to the Corinthians, I say and not Christ, it doesn't mean his word is less inspired because God has providentially appointed for Paul's words to be equally eternal, equally inspired. But back to the point of the bread of life discourse, there are things that are repeated in such a way that it's striking. And when you gather, if you want to say bundle those things together, they come up with at least what I've gathered together here are five main themes, five main themes that Jesus, because he keeps repeating over and over again in this 27 verse text that we would be remiss if we didn't recognize very, very important themes. Indeed. I want to begin though, however, by uh, recognizing that, uh, again, reminding we did see the end of the story, and it's not a happy one. Indeed, the end of the story at the, at the gospel's end is the death of Jesus Christ, but the happy ending, of course, is his resurrection. But this discourse doesn't end well. I, I think that this really affected the 100% son of man that he is, that he is a human, and he is, I believe, grieved to his heart by those who have turned away, the many that have turned away from this discourse. And what is he, what is he, what is so unattractive after all? What is so offensive after all? He's offering them life. He's offering them the nourishment that is required for eternal life. He's, he's offering them this at no cost. It will cost him everything, cost them nothing. And many, the text says, and at the time, this is right off of the feeding of the 20 or so thousand that he fed with the loaves and the fishes. So there, it could conceivably be in a conservative figure, some thousands that walk away. The disciples are left there. And of course, he asks that very gripping, grieving question. Will you too leave as well? And you can see the broken heart in the son of God at this point. It's a man standing there offering everything, indeed offering his life as we'll see as we go through. But in thinking about this, I thought, the most important question that I can think we can ask ourselves is the ultimate question for someone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. This ultimate test that the text gives us. And I draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 and following, 
where Paul says it's actually a good thing. So when sometimes when I've met with people in private, in counseling and so forth, they they can be put off or even offended when I suggest that maybe they might not really know Christ given their life and the trajectory of it and the things that are going on and the things that are most important to them. We show our values. We wear our values at our shirt sleeves all the time with what we do with our temporary resources, time, energy, money, and possessions. And so they're put off because they wanted to check that box. And so, but Paul makes it clear here in this text, and this, this will be the segue into our uh, continuing this next part of the bread of life. Paul says to the Corinthian church in verse 5 through 8, examine yourself. So this is a good thing to do. These, these people that he's speaking to, you would that they would examine themselves. In what sense? To see whether you're in the faith. Says it again in another way, test yourselves. There's a test. Apparently there is. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ, and mark these two words, are in you. We're going to take a careful look at that, obviously, in the portion of the discourse where he's saying, listen, you need to understand, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so the early Christians, this is for real, were accused of being cannibals. Nobody understood what he meant by that. It's a, it's a profound statement that has to be indeed hard to hear. And they even say that in verse 60 of our text, that this is a hard thing to hear. What does that mean? Your test is to realize this about yourselves, assuming they're Christians. And he did in the case of the Corinthians, he gave them the gospel that Christ Jesus Christ is in you. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may seem to have failed. And here's the test. For we cannot do anything against what? The truth. When the truth comes, many people reject it. That's just the ratio. We've been given that ratio from Jesus himself. It's going to be the many and the few. So there's a part of him, I would suggest, that isn't surprised with so many walking away, but there's a part, obviously, because he loves them, that's grieved. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. So there's our litmus test. How do they respond when the truth comes? As long as he's feeding them physical food, as long as he's giving them real literal water, they're okay with that because that satiates their flesh. Something changed. But clearly this, is, this makes more sense when you look at other texts like John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no coming to the life because the life has to be in him. And if he's in him, it's the truth. And if the truth comes and it's rejected, I'm not having this. And they walk away. How can they say that Christ is in them? That's the point. That's why he's grieving. We want to be reminded of this as we come to the end. As I mentioned in John 6.60, when many of his disciples heard it, he said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Christ in me? I have to literally consume him? What does that mean? This is crazy. 
just a heads up, just a, a quick heads up. They have to be made to understand, don't they? And we'll see that. We understand that. But six verses, five verses later, six verses later in John six sixty six, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Who are these people? The Old Testament gives us a heads up from the minor prophet Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 6, those who have turned back from following the Lord. Because remember, I remind you, these are disciples that turned away. Many of his disciples, verse 60, many of his disciples heard it and rejected it. So they've turned from following the Lord, Zephaniah says. So these are people that claim to belong to God. These are Jewish people who are following God, or so they think. But they've turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Those always go hand in hand, don't they? The people that turn away don't, aren't interested in looking at the truth of God's word. Because they've already decided to reject it. They've already decided, look, I dialed this thing in the way I want so that I can check the box that I'm a Christian. And that's why Paul is saying, hey, listen, we need to examine ourselves. He even invites them to examine him and the rest of the apostles. Examine yourselves. Unless we fail the test, we're hoping we're, we aren't failing the test. What's the test? That we're not against any of the truth, that we accept the truth and that we are only for the truth. We see these people turning away. You know, all Christians want a strong, confident leader as long as that leader can they'll follow him as long as that he leads the charge and doesn't waver when it gets tough, as long as he doesn't shrink back when the opposition comes. Yeah, that's our guy. Go after those, the, other, the people on the other team. You need to come and hear the preacher, man. He goes after those who are in error and those other guys. Yeah, yeah, we, wanna, we, wanna, we want him. Let's, let's take him and make him king. Let's do that. Let's make him king. Because I'm all about this guy. This guy doesn't back off. Look at the claims he's making in front of people. This is remarkable. So, as long as he stays there, they would say, stay in your lane, Jesus. Stay in your lane. You start talking, you turn. You, as long as you're facing the opposition, we're, we're right behind you. Keep going at him with truth. Keep going at him with the truth. Well, what does he do? He turns and he says, what about you? What about you? For many, they will only approve if the leadership continues to follow along with something that meets their expectations. As long as it's something that doesn't affect me, doesn't get up in, in my heart or in my business. Because if it does, I'm going to walk away. That's these people, that's this crowd, that's the many. They're turning away. Once his leadership begins to expose their hearts and cause them something, it's very difficult, it's hard to hear. Who can hear these things? 
That sounds cannibalistic. He's confronting them with the Word, with the truth. And that's what Paul says. John 6, 14, 15, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Yay! Right answer. That's true. He's the prophet, the expected one, the one Moses talked about. We know about Moses and what he said, and this is the prophet. But then what happens? Next verse, perceiving then, this is something probably only Jesus could do, or maybe he just overheard what the scuttlebutt was, right? Maybe he's just, maybe he's just overheard them talking, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. How did he feel in that moment? No, 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 don't go there. Don't go there. Really, this is about capturing your heart. This is about you guys getting the main point. That I've come to retrieve something that's dead and blind, and it belongs to me, and I'm going to bring it life. I'm going to wake it up with the truth. But the Father is going to have to teach you. You're going to see that as we go along in the text here. It's going to have to be the Father that teaches you. That's why Isaiah 54 is cited there in the midst of this discourse. The Father has to teach them. If they learn from the Father, then they will recognize me and accept me. But we read First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they... We're not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So they would have stayed with me and my disciples if they had been part of us, but they went out that, they might, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. How important this 27-verse discourse is. The bread of life he's come to offer himself to satiate insatiable people. I am the only one, he could say. The bread of life, Jesus Christ, provides for us all we ever need in these critical areas. You remember, first of all, in eternal salvation, he provides, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And and nobody's going to have eternal life except through me. He'll say in verse 44, nobody's going to come to me unless the Father draws him. That's sovereignty. It's, it can't happen. But if it does happen, glory goes to whom? My Father. It goes to God. Exactly. This bread of life that he's offering them in this discourse, secondly, is our lifelong sanctification. I'm not just going to save you. Some people think, yeah, I was saved. I checked that box. What? What do I have to what business do I have now? Well, ask people that struggle, ask people that are suffering. We need him this entire life here on this earth. And he's provided for that. He is Jehovah Makadashem. He is the God who sanctifies us, as well as being Jehovah Tasidkanu, the Lord, our righteousness. He's offering all that to us. Every bit you could ever want to look like him as he recaptures the soul that belongs to him after all. Everything. And they reject it and walked away. But third, and this is, the, this is the part maybe we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about because we'd rather 
you know, hammer down on the theological, uh, like God's sovereignty in, in eternal sanctification and God's sovereignty over the whole, whole hamartiology that we deal with on a daily basis. But they haven't realized this, that he has come to be your ultimate, complete, whole satisfaction. And so we rummage around on this earth, whether with in relationships or in activities or possessions or our work. And we remain unsatisfied. And he allows that so that we would say, that it's only ultimately ever going to be satiated in him. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so here we go, verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. <laughs> because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. So they pull one thing out of his discourse. Ah, see, see, that bothers me. That bothers me. So let's reject the whole thing and walk away. Because they knew what that meant, that he's God. Only deity comes down from heaven. Verse 30, 42, rather. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Well, let's forget everything else he's ever taught. Let's forget it all. Let's hang our hat on this so that we can reject the whole. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Jesus said, verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Still offering facts, offering truth. It is written in the prophets. Here's what I mentioned earlier from Isaiah 54. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. There you go. That's how it's got to happen. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from the Father. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. You just have to wonder how long you would have stro striven with a group like this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Should they not be jumping up and saying hallelujah at this point? He's here, the anointed one. 
The Messiah is here. This is our ticket. This is our, this is our way to heaven and eternal life with God. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I'm giving you everything. I'm giving you myself. What is this? This is getting strange. Especially when he gets to this next part. Listen to this. Verse 53. Or no. uh, Verse 52. Yeah. The next paragraph. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Okay, I get that. It's hard to understand making statements like that. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in me. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food. And my blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Father, we ask for your help. We ask for your help. Though we've had these words in our possession for quite some time, and we do thank you for that advantage, still we need help. These are still hard words to understand. Harder still is to live them out. Harder still is not to resist them. Help us understand the import of these words that you might be glorified in our lives. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So there's five major themes in the Bread of Life discourse, just to briefly go over them, and then we'll pick up, give a brief review, and keep going. So these themes are the pre-existence of God in Christ, number one, and we looked at that, and number two, the provision of God in Christ as that second theme, the pre-existence of God, or let me finish the list, and then we'll go on to look at the first two that we looked at last week. Third is the providence of God in Christ that we'll look at this morning. Four, the power of God in Christ. Five, the perpetual life of the believer in Christ. And so last week we looked at the preexistence of God in Christ. This is a unequivocating unequivocated claim of deity. These things that he says here. When he says as I mentioned earlier, he comes down or came down from heaven, that statement is made oh, what is it? 7 times. Verse 32, 33, 38, 41, 50, 51, 58, 32. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. 38, for I have come down from heaven. 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They understood what that meant. 
Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And so you have to ask yourself, the reason why he's this repetitive, it must be a major theme. And the major statement it's making is, I am in fact, I am. I am in fact, the I am. I'm God. Okay. That's why they want to kill him. Second point, the provision of God that we looked at last week in Christ, in the case of the provision for salvation, it's in those four verses there. The provision for our satisfaction we talked about in the four verses there. Verse 33, the bread of life is he who comes down from heaven. 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me, whoever comes to me shall not hunger Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, verse 36, that you have seen me and yet do not believe, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So where you see the bread repeated and eternal life repeated, those statements are believing, which is the way to attain eternal life. That is Jesus saying clearly, I am providing the way of salvation for you. And then also the satisfaction in the fact that he is the living bread in those passages. J.C. Ryle said this, that living bread, which does not merely feed the body like common bread, but supplies eternal sustenance and nourishment to the eternal soul. It is like the water of life from Revelation 22:17 and the living water from John 4:10 he is given to be the great supply of all the wants of men's souls whatever our spiritual necessity may be however starving famished weak and desperate our condition there is enough in Christ and with plenty to spare end quote Do we live that way? Do we? Fair question, right? I ask myself that. I think it's good for all of us too. Third, the providence of God in Christ this is based on this bundling of the will of him who sent me or my father. So this is the providence of God in Jesus taking on the will of the father and completing it. So this is the providential outworking of salvation, the providential outworking of the sustaining of the not only bringing life, but sustaining life. Him, my, the father, all of these personal words, verse 32, 37, all the way. There's several verses there where Jesus, verse 32, said then to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the bread from heaven. You have to understand this is just a part of the providential outworking of his sovereign plan. 
It's the will of the Father that I be sent. It's the will of the Father that I have come. It is the will of the Father that you've been fed with loaves and fishes and now with much, much more. All that the Father gives me, verse 37, will come to me. That's a sovereign statement. Every single one that is written down in the Lamb's book of life will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Because those are a gift from the Father. What he's, in, what he's making us, allowing us rather, to see is the outworking of something very powerful between the Father and the Son. We get the, the record of what actually is taking place here. It's a, hello, pay attention time. What is God doing here? He's telling us what's going on within the Trinity. This is the outworking of that cooperation, the perfect submission and cooperation that we see in the Trinity. These are the Father's people. These, these, these people belong to the Father and they've been given to me. And everyone He gives to me will come to me. That's supposed to comfort us, isn't it? It should. It should. You shouldn't be nervous at all going out on that street corner with Bart because it's got to be father, the Father that's written their name down and he understands that. But he uses us to proclaim the gospel. So what we're seeing here is an amazing disclosure or revelation of what God, Almighty God, is doing within the Trinity. We're just bit players in this. The major issue is that love that we get to see between the Father and the Son. All at the Father. He's, he's filled with the love of His Father. And so he proclaims, he can't withhold this. There's very little to do with us. Very little. We're just those people who actually blew a great privilege being the only creature in this created order that had the image and likeness of God and blew it, right? Now he's got to come back like a father will. Give us a way to be restored, but it's not about us. It's about his love for his son and the son's love for the father. Remarkable. We have a curtain pulled back here. This isn't just, oh, he's talking to me. (laughs) Don't flatter yourself. Verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You should know that. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me. So we get the the privilege of hearing something here, something Trinitarian here, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But it's said also so that we would be comforted. I'm not going to lose one. And yet you have Christians who doubt. Where does that come from? Have they not read these things? Share them with them. All those who have given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. How are you going to violate that? How are you going to circumvent that? How are you going to to mess that up? You can't. 
left us on our own and we did mess it up. We chose to sin. Now he sends the son. The son's going to make sure that those that the father has named for his glory's sake will come. And he will make sure, as difficult as it is, he will pay the price for their salvation. Amazing. This is the will of my Father. What is it? That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. Not might have, not could have. They will have eternal life. And what's more, I will raise Him up on the last day. First part of 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is sovereignty, folks. If He hasn't, if he hasn't given that name to the Son... They're not going to come. Jesus could preach the gospel. They're not going to come. Oh, that's right. Jesus did preach the gospel and they turned away. You can reject the living Christ on this earth when he speaks pure truth and offers you eternal life and remission for your sins. You can reject that. We must be some kind of rascals. Yeah. <laughs> we are. We're rascals. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by a rabbi. Is that what it says? They will all be taught by who? This is a Trinitarian deal, folks. This is God. This is God. I've got the words, but the word and the will is the Father's. This is us working in perfect harmony. By the way, that's how our relationships are supposed to work. Nothing but pure joy and satisfaction welling up in giving the greatest sacrifice any person ever could your entire life. What do we do with that? Let's move on. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Why? Because he has to make them understand, just like Lydia. He has to make them understand. She would have never accepted the words coming from the Apostle Paul had God not opened her heart to it. He's got to do that. This is all sovereignty. Every bit of it. This is all a Trinitarian work. Irresistible grace, right? Isn't that the eye of that flower? Whatever it is. Verse 46, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Boy, they've got to be getting upset here. Verse 57, As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me he will he also will live because of me that's why you keep saying those who are in christos in me in me in me in me and i in them i in them they in me i and the father are one and they are in me this is yeah, it's hard to grasp, isn't it? And maybe think of the high priestly prayer, John 17. 
it's helpful here. Verse 2 to 3 of John 17, speaking of himself, Jesus says to the Father there, You have given him, he's referring to himself, You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. See, his sovereignty is all over the scripture, isn't it? We choose to overlook it because we want to be responsible for anything good in our lives. We, we want shared glory there, don't we? Yeah. And this is eternal life, he goes on to say, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There it is again. How about verse 6 and 7 of 17? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know. But why? Because he taught them, we learned in our text, right? Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. Do we know that? Do we admit that? Everything has come from Him. Remarkable. Verse 9 of 17, I'm praying for them. Isn't this powerful? Isn't this precious? Isn't this glorious? I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. When are we going to enter into the picture? Well, He's praying for us. I, I guess we can claim that. But He's going back and forth. The Father Me, mine, the Father has given. I am receiving. I'll never lose because my Father gave them to me. They belong to me and I'm going to give them back to the Father and they're going to be sanctified and they're going to look like me and I'll give them back to the Father and say, look what I've done. Enter into my glory. Stand at my right hand. What does that have to do with me? (laughs) Help me out, brother, will you? Verse 24 of 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, folks, it's all through Scripture, may be with me where I am to see why. Because he just loves us so much. (laughs) That's not what he says. To see my glory, that they may be with with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's what we're part of. Four, the power of God in Christ. So in this next bundling, we clearly see the power to accomplish the providential outworking of our salvation and sanctification and always remember satisfaction. So our hearts are like spirits. They're like ghosts that wander through this fallen creation to attach themselves to things and people. The power that he has to raise us up. The power in resurrection is in verse 39, 40, 44, and, 40, and 54. And this is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up the last day. Verse 
40, similar statement, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, second half, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 54, and I will raise him up on the last day. Does he want to get our attention with that or what? (laughs) Is he going to raise us up on the last day? Maybe. I mean, wow. I like this. For, for the eternal security, I always love John 10, don't you? 20, uh, 28 through 30. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, see how much he goes back to the him and the Father? Not a whole lot of talk about us. We talk about us enough for both of us, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Verse 29, my father has given them to me and he is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. They're looking for stones right there, aren't they? Clear indication of deity. He's in the father and the father is in him, inseparable, inextricably together. Co-eternal, co-essential. These are one and the same and yet functioning in a Trinitarian relationship. It's just mind-boggling, but it should be, shouldn't it? So not only the power and resurrection, but what I want to look at a little bit longer is this idea of his power in replication, if you will. Not that we become gods, but the replication, because you are working on your sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you might look like whom? Jesus. That's right. We want to look like Jesus. We do. We want to look like him. This, I think, is beginning to enter into what is being said with all of these statements about through verse 51 through 57, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Let's look at these statements. 51 second half. The bread that I give you will give you for the life of for the life of the world is my flesh. 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat my flesh, the flesh of the Son of God, or Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You have to consume me, or you have no life in me. That's just how it is. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. 55, for my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. What you had from Moses was temporary. Matter of fact, it got rancid after a day. There's a point to that. Don't gather it up. Why? Because you should be depending on the sustenance of God every day. It sets his promise. This verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He abides in me and I in him. Verse 57, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So it's not just believing a doctrine. It's not just believing the teaching. 
It's him internalized. This, I believe, is a missing element in a lot of those who go by the name Christian. It's not just saying, I believe. There were Jews that believed in John chapter 8, verse 31. The Jews that were believing, Jesus said to them, unless you abide in my word. And who's the word, by the way? It's Jesus. You are not my disciples. They believed. And James says, even the demons, what? You're familiar with that. It, it must be more than that. Well, he's making that clear by, by repeating this idea of consuming him. He has to be internalized. He has to be metabolized by you and I. To metabolize something is to convert a food into strength, into energy, and into growth. So he says in 44a and 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, as is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Verse 13 of Isaiah 54 is what he's citing there. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father has come to me. And it's not simply hearing and believing. It is internalizing. These personal pronouns, I, my, me, he uses 27 times. 27 times in 25 verses. Jesus made this intensely personal because true Christianity is necessarily and eternally relational. This is the missing element for some, sadly. They think they're okay. But when we find out, no, you actually have to, you have to have Christ in you. He has to be in you. He has to be abiding in you. Why? The point was made this morning, first hour. Or your obedience is going to come from the wrong place. It's not coming from the heart. By the way, two good verses to put to that are Romans 6.17 and Ephesians 6.6. 6. The obedience is from the heart. Or it's not only meaningless in terms of its efficacy, it's offensive to God. Why? The heart has not been won. That's what David gets in Psalm 51. That's why we looked at that chapter. He gets it. That's the whole point. I get it now. I can't just call myself the apple of your eye, David might say, uh, unless and until you want these things on the inward parts. You want truth on the inward parts, not just saying occasions of truth that are convenient for me to build some kind of narrative that I want you to see. Truth has to come from here so that when truth comes, you don't walk away. You stay. You metabolize it. As hard as that often is to do. Because he's there. He's the one bringing the conviction. He's the one speaking to you. He's the one who wants to sanctify you. McLaren said this, you cannot separate what Christ gives 
from what Christ is. You can take the truths that another man proclaims altogether regardless of him and his personality. You can take Plato's teaching, for instance, and do as you like with Plato. But you cannot take Christ's teaching and do as you like with Christ. It's personal. It's possessional. You are his possession. His personality is the center of his gift to the world, end quote. J.C. Rowles comes right off of that with a great statement. Very similar. When I trust Christ, I get more than his gifts. I get himself. That when my faith goes out to him, it not only rests me on him, it brings him into me. And that food of the spirit becomes life. The life of my spirit. Amen. End quote. If you have any doubt, deal with that now. Right. Or he's being mocked. We definitely don't want to do that with that kind of a heart when we take communion, do we? Because that's the visual symbolism of it. We're to take him in. He says, you must eat of my flesh. No, I can't bear that, that command. What are you talking about? It's my flesh and my blood in you or you have no life because he is life. You see, he is life. So it's not just a statement or a walk down an aisle or signing a card. It's not just saying, no, I believe this. No, I believe it. No, you're not there yet. I prefer to ask People that go by the name Christian, do you know him? Do you know him? Because I know him, and I'd love to talk to you about him right now. And it's hard to even get people to come to church. <laughs> That's not supposed to be discouraging? Wow. Help me. Help me. This breaks my heart because it breaks his. Will you walk away too? Will you? Heartbreaking statement. You feed on food that perishes from the creation. You feed only temporarily a body that's perishing, right? Anybody not know that they're going to die someday physically? <laughs> I hope you got that figured out. Jesus consumed and internalized fills our hearts. There's a huge difference between my heart, the things that motivate me, the values that I have, and therefore what I worship. People do what's most important to them. You know, I meant to be there. I love that statement. I really meant to, but, 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 People do what's most important to them. 
Please remember that. I try to remind myself of that every day so I can avoid those kind of embarrassing statements. This is valuable to me, and I will be there. That's my commitment to you, Lord. Jesus metabolized, fuels our affections. That's the engine room. Read Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. You'll see this if you care to read it, and I recommend that you do. He fulfills our deepest longings when he's metabolized, not when, okay, I got to read the Bible and I got to pray. Please don't. Turn the game on or, or do something else. Don't, don't, don't walk this. Please don't mock this. I say that to myself. So the question is, how do we consume or take in or metabolize the body and blood of Jesus Christ? The answer is that not only must you believe him, as I was saying, but you must also desire him and pursue him and not just favors from him. You must... Not only believe in him, you must also desire him and pursue him, not just favors from him. And when that happens, just like he's saying in our text, you know why he cited Isaiah 54, 13. The father, they learned from my father. He sees the ones that respond. All he's doing is preaching truth. And he can see. So don't you, un can't you just recognize why he has such a love for the ones that the father appoints for salvation and that he gets the privilege to serve the father and the Godhead itself to bring to life and they come to life and they abide in him. A whole new set of values, a whole new set of affections that drive the man, that set his feet a-going, as Edward says. These are religious affections. You have to metabolize him, not just read about him, not just keep reading doctrinal books, listening to podcasts, whatever those things are that might be helpful. Remember, you need to metabolize this. That's why we not only emphasize sound orthodoxy, we emphasize the sound orthopraxy. It's intended to produce we don't just boast in how much we know about reformed theology. Throw it in the trash heap if it's not transforming you. If you haven't metabolized Christ, he doesn't want to hear about how much you know about theology. He wants you to consume him. He wants you to desire him. He wants you to go after him. This is about love. This is a relationship. Hello? The most important one in the universe, right? We consume with Jesus when we fix our eyes on him. A lot of distractions. I had a whole list in my homework prepared for this morning, but I thought um, we didn't really have time. <laughs> but I would just think about it. We didn't even get into the whole area of Internet stuff. Facebook, X, formerly Twitter, 
on and on. How much of our time? We should have a little stopwatch that we click on when we're ever in. And for me, I'm part of the organization that teaches in Europe, as you know, and we're all on base camp. So there's constantly stuff coming in from base camp. Check out what's going on in my community. Let's look at next door. I mean, if you just look at that kind of stuff and podcasts and a whole host of other things that just consume the time and allow you to, the freedom to not be affected by it, except to feel better because now you know more. <laughs> wow. Aren't, aren't we rascals? Yeah, we are. We fix our eyes on him. We turn to him in prayer. We trust in him in all and every circumstance. That's it. This is him coming in. We metabolize his life and ours through deliberate efforts to adopt his thinking, repeat his sayings, and imitate his ways. I want to be like Christ. That's the idea. Spurgeon said, possession breeds desire. Full assurance is no hindrance to diligence. Full assurance is no hindrance to diligence. But it is the mainspring of it. How can I... See, if I have metabolized Christ, if I have him internally, I've, I've consumed the, 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 the blood and the flesh, then that's going to produce that affection where I'm going to seek after that major love interest in my life. I don't have to beat back sleepy eyes and pour a bunch of coffee and sort of just begrudgingly go to my devotionals. I cannot wait. It was his pleasure to wake me up at 3.30 in the morning this morning. I've been awake ever since to commune with him. Not that I get things right. I usually get things wrong. So he has to do it himself. Those are sweet and powerful times. Can I choose to think about other things? Oh, yeah. What does the enemy want you thinking about at that time? <laughs> everything wrong in your life. Everything that's challenging. Everything that's difficult. So you can be a wreck by the time you might get to 5.30 or 6 in the morning. How can I, he, his Spurgeon again, how can I seek another man's God? But it is with ardent desire that I seek after him whom I know to be, listen to this language, to be my own. That's possession. Greater than a marriage. It better be. It better be. Or that marriage is going to be in trouble. I promise you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, gaze, consider, contemplate as you decide to follow him, imitating him. Psalm seventeen fifteen. As for me, listen to this, I shall behold your face in righteousness. And when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. How glorious is that? Psalm 123, verse 1, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Why did he give us these guys? Why did he give us these psalmists? To inspire us. This is supposed to be you and I. 
Psalm 25, we heard read this morning, verse 1 and 2 and 15. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. Here's Spurgeon. We've got to bring this in for a landing here pretty quick. True prayer may be described as the soul rising from earth to have fellowship in heaven. It is taking a journey upon Jacob's ladder, leaving our cares and fears at the foot, and meeting with a covenant God at the top. Very often the soul cannot rise. She's lost her wings and is heavy and earthbound, more like a burrowing mole than a soaring eagle. At such dull seasons, we must not give up on prayer, but must, by God's assistance, exert all our power to lift up our hearts. Let faith be the lever and grace be the arm and the faint heart will yet be stirred. But what a lift it has sometimes proved. With all our tugging and straining, we have been utterly defeated until the heavenly magnet of our Savior's love has displayed its omnipotent attractions. And then our hearts have gone up to, to our beloved like mounting flames of fire. End quote. Why aren't we writing like that in our day today? Why do we have to read things like that and kind of just be in awe? Oh, yeah, this has got to be hyperbole. Who's living like that today? Do you know anybody? Fifth and finally, we'll do this briefly and then we'll close. The fifth main theme we see repeated over and over again, perhaps more than any other theme, is the perpetual life of the believer in Christ the, word the words live, life, living, live forever, eternal life, not die. I mean, how many different ways do you have to say it? We have perpetual life. And there's your verses for you. John 5.26 says this, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. I'm going to close with Revelation 22, 16 to 17. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Verse 21, the last verse of Revelation. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for, for your, your immense patience with us. There are so many competing distractions and the enemy is quite pleased to dangle them before our eyes like bright and shiny things. Oh Lord, it is hard to live by this statement that we do what's most important to us at any given time. And time 
is something, at least for this day, you've given us. And we assemble here because we desire to worship you. Oh Lord, I pray for anyone who struggles having recognized through your word that they've fallen far short of the life that you have for them, of the full and complete satisfaction that they would find in you. They simply go after you, consume you, metabolize your word of truth that you might abide in them. Oh Lord, we want to see you glorified. Glorify yourself now in these things, in the saved souls that you've come after to rescue. And so may you be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.